grab a seat. So, um, every once in a while, uh, I'd like to uh, share some embarrassing things about myself to help create a spirit of vulnerability here. That's certainly what we're seeking. We don't want anyone to feel as though they need to be fake. On the opposite, we like people to express uh, who they really are so that we uh, all don't come in here and put on the masquerade. So, I would like to share with you that from when I was born to when I was seven years old, I had a blankie and sucked my thumb. That's right, for seven years, um, which is somewhat embarrassing. Uh, some kids suck their thumb, you know, one, two, three years old. I was the seven-year-old. Uh, I don't know what grade that puts me in. I think fifth or sixth grade, I'm, if I'm doing my math correctly. And it, this, this blankie, though, was a huge piece of my life. Um, had it for seven years, uh, couldn't go anywhere without it. Uh, called my mom a few days ago. Said, "Hey, mom, you remember, you remember my security blanket? Um, do you have any pictures of me with that blanket?" And of course, as moms do, uh, she sure did. Here's me uh, laying on top of my blanket. Um, I'm, 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 I think seven years old. There, that looks about right. Um, my mom actually, one of the things that damaged me as a small child. Uh, was when I was seven, she finally realized uh, for her that this was starting to get embarrassing, that her son would carry a blankie around. So she uh, concocted this story one day, and I remember um, waking up. She had gone in the middle of the night, and uh, she said, Mark, a crazy thing. The dryer uh, ate your blanket. And I remember, like, sitting there, first shocked, second trying to, you know, think through how that could possibly happen, right? I, I wasn't all that smart as a lad, but I could... I knew the, the dryer wasn't alive, and so she like took me in, and you know the little holes in the dryer? She said, Mark, crazy thing, like the, the holes just sucked your blanket through, and it's, and it's gone forever. When I was 18, she gave me the blanket back, and uh, she had never told me the, the truth to that story. And so I remember like thinking, like, are you serious? Yeah, and we have a baby crying right now, like the thought of a security blanket leaving. Uh, the apple didn't fall too far from the tree. You can take that picture down. It's somewhat scary. Ashamed to say, my uh, oldest son, uh, th this, is, this is embarrassing. Uh, this is what we call Doggy in my house. Uh, Dawson, who's a two-year-old, uh, um, uh, actually, he's older than that now. He continues to grow in age. Uh, <laughs> just turned three. But he, uh, this is his uh, security blanket. Doesn't go anywhere else uh, without it. He loves this thing. He calls it Doggy. And he sniffs it, right? So he like rubs this thing close to his nose, uh, much like his Aunt Brienne. And uh, this is, uh, sorry, Brie, if you're here. She's probably still upstairs, which is helpful. This is my youngest son. Uh, this is a boy thing, uh, apparently. My, my uh, sons are going to grow up to be stallions, clearly. Can you imagine a seven-year-old boy like carrying this around, right? Uh, this is, so we call this Bunny. And, and my little daughter has a little puppy dog named Max, which is a little bit you know, better. Uh, so what was yours? What was your security blanket? Did you have one, right? Any of you guys have a blankie, a teddy bear, uh, you know, something that you slept with or kept, uh, kept you comfortable? Moment of interaction here. Anyone want to throw a couple of these out? I'd like to hear from you. Curious George. Curious George. That's a classic, of course. Anyone else? Alf. Alf? Oh, yeah. That, he was somewhat scary, actually. <laughs> Did you have the pull and talk, Alf? Yes. This is a stuffed animal. Okay, fair enough. Uh, anyone else have any good ones? Any from this side? You guys have any good ones? Kellen, did you have one when you were growing up, bro? What did he have? I'm curious. He's one of the larger... Crochet pink and white blanket. Okay. Okay. Do you still have it somewhere? Does he, Autumn, does he still sleep with that thing? Every night. Good. 
Uh, so obviously we would say, like currently, if we were to still have security blankets, uh, that that would be somewhat embarrassing. In other words, if all of us gathered here and we all looked around and we, st- like we had the thing like tucked under a seat, you know, and when the teaching time came, like everyone pulled it out and like, it would be incredibly weird. It would be weird to still have a security blanket. And yet, uh, I, I actually think we all still possess it. Uh, but it doesn't come in the form of, t- of a teddy bear or a dog ear bunny or a dog uh, named Max. It comes in the form of words. I think actually for us, words are our security blanket. It's like we, just, just by saying something, whether it's true or not, it makes us feel better. It could be the farthest thing from the truth, in fact, but just, just because it comes out of our mouth, it, for some reason, holds some weight, helps us feel secure and locked in and held. It's one thing to have a security blanket that is based on falsehood. It's another thing to have the security and the stronghold of the words of God. And so as we're getting into tonight, I need to share a passage with you that is way more than a security blanket. It's an amazing text that has ripped me apart. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 24. Listen to this. Moses is having a conversation with God about Moses not being let into the land, the promised land. And Moses, who has seen a tremendous amount of the work of God, says this. O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. This comes from a guy who saw the sea part, who saw all the plagues, and God deliver the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptians. And he says, you have only begun to show your servant. And then he says, for what God, and recognize the lowercase, what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? And I think about how our words provide some security oftentimes in the negative tone, and I think about how a passage like this reminds me that I've lived 32 years of life and have seen some incredible things of God, but I stand here tonight believing and praying that the Lord will increase my faith all the more to know that He's just getting started. That that His works and the things that I've seen possible that He can do, that they've only just begun And so I really believe wherever you come from tonight, struggling, incredibly blessed, encouraged, joyous, wherever it is that you're on the map, can we just say, like, God's only getting started. And if you walked in here thinking, like, I'm too far gone, there's no way, there's no hope, or I'll never experience more joy, maybe, just maybe, God even tonight will show you, listen, you don't understand my mighty hand has yet even begun to work. So my prayer tonight is that by God's word, we will be stirred with tremendous affection about his continued move and act. Are we together? So open your Bibles to the book of James. It's what we're studying now. Going to study actually the the least amount of text in our whole journey through James tonight. Jared did a marvelous job last week, listened to the sermon on my way home, and uh, was incredibly encouraged by his uh, handle of James 2, 1 through 13. Tonight we turn to a very famous text that has everything to do with words and how they're security blankets for us. So we'll begin here in James chapter 2, verse 14, and we'll rock all the way to verse 17. Are you guys there? Say, I'm there. Here we go for the six of us. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? In verse 17, finally, 
so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Easily one of the most quoted verses I've ever used. I've preached this sermon ever since I was 16 years old. Multiple times, a famous text, and I'll tell you this right now. God has shown me new and tremendous things from this passage, and it all begins here in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, cannot faith save him? There's two questions, kind of rhetorical questions in this verse, and I want to deal with the second first. Can that faith save him? Anytime you see the word save in the Bible, the Greek word here is sozo, meaning deliverance, it should perk up our antennas. Anytime in the scripture you see this powerful, weighty word save, which means deliverance, it better stir our hearts. And so the question is tonight, does it? Do we instantly see the word save and get drawn in, our attention grabbed, because whatever the writer is about to say has everything to do with salvation, and that should bear great weight in our hearts. So the question I want to ask is, does the weightiness of being saved hit you? And in another way, do you need to be saved? Ask the uh, person who's on a raft in the middle of the ocean. Have you ever seen like one of the Discovery Channel uh, specials, right? Or uh, someone or a group of soldiers or you know, a, a shipwreck or a plane wreck, a group were stranded on a, a raft in the middle of the ocean. Have you ever seen that? Ask those people if they need to be saved. Have you ever seen any documentaries of someone who uh, found themselves in a concentration camp? Ask those people uh, if they needed to be saved. Uh, why don't you ask uh, the child who is growing in age and then realizes that he's been or she's been physically or sexually abused all their life. Ask that person if they need deliverance. All three examples, an emphatic yes, please save me now, right? Like a desperation. Because anytime life and death seem to be held in the same hand, on the raft, it could go either way. The concentration camp, life or death, so fragile. And when you're being physically and sexually abused, like you start to wonder, where is life? When those happen, it creates this sense of desperation, like, someone please help me, save me now. Ask those people if they need to be saved. And then I say this, ask the sinner. Those three situations would all be emphatic yeses. So why, if we were to ask the sinner if they need to be saved, that we would get mixed reviews? Some an emphatic, desperate yes, please help me now. And others, what are you talking about? I'm not a sinner. I have no need of any kind of deliverance. As we're getting into this text, I think it's important first to understand our need of saving. Because if you're here tonight and you don't think that you need to be saved, then this passage makes no difference. Agree? You cannot fa- can agree, right? Right? So if we're going to dive in the text, then we better first understand our need of saving. The scripture says that because one man sinned in Romans that all have sinned, Adam and Eve eat the fruit in the garden, and you may say it's unfair. For those of you that say that because they sin, you're a sinner, it's unfair. I'd also say then the love of Christ is unfair. We're inhabited with sin because of their error. And because of their sin, then all of us, the Scripture says, have fallen short. Every single person is a sinner. Now, if you're just joining us tonight, or if you've been here a long time, you need to understand this. That your sin separates you from God. You were born in your flesh separated from God. And that fact in and of itself 
is reason enough and the only reason to understand that you need deliverance. Why? Because you need God, period. And it's that separation from God that was created by sin is the reason why Jesus, the Lord Jesus, came, lived perfectly, died on a cross willingly on our behalf, His blood atonement, forgiveness for our sins, and then His resurrection from the tomb, significance that He could stomp on the head of the serpent, walk out, and then provide life for us. So the question or the the reality for each of us is, is, do you need that? Have you gotten um, a little bit lax in your need of saving? And if you have, then texts like this, they mean nothing. In fact, the scripture in general, you just find your heart hardened against it because you haven't this desperation in your heart that you need the Lord. And I recognize there are believers in this room that would confess Christ with their mouth, but in their heart still don't think they need the grace of God. And I want to bring us all in tonight that the rhetorical question, can that faith save him, should be driven by the recognition that we need it. So you ask the concentration camp person on the raft, kid who's being abused, and you know what? You ask the sinner, and the sinner better be more desperate than all three of those combined. Are we together? Because sin is a bigger issue than a concentration camp. And that sounds weighty. We're like, but the horror, the wretchedness of those moments for those individuals, sin is worse. Because there were some of those folks that believed in God, and yes, life on this earth was in desperate peril, but my friends, they received the crown of life in Christ. Are we together? So any raft in the middle of the ocean, any concentration camp, any physical abuse is not as weighty as our sin and desperate need of God. And so whatever it is that the writer James here has to say to these Jewish readers in the first Christian church of Jerusalem, right, it has tremendous weight. So the first question of this verse, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? We need to define some terms. The word good, you may be like, I have a good handle on that one, right? Like I'm pretty solid on my English. The word is better, uh, benefited, profited. What benefit is it if someone says he has faith? The Greek word for faith is pistis and uh, I was uh, asking my uh, kids a couple nights ago as I was uh, guiding them and taking them through family worship just what faith means to them. My two sons shook their head and uh, held their uh, security blankets up to their nose. However, my daughter, in all of her uh, glory, uh, said, Dad, faith is when you get sick and you believe that God can heal you. And I said, not bad. Like, well, like we'll go with that, right? Like, it's this trust in the Lord. Hebrews 11.1 1, uh, says this for us. Uh, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things uh, not seen. So there is this premise of faith that has everything to do with trusting, um, even in the pieces of the Lord, that you can't see, which I know for many of you is difficult. That's why you're always asking for a sign or the Lord to use some airplane and write you a note in the sky, right? But what faith is, is this burden on your heart that... No matter what you can see or not see, you know that he's real. He's showing himself. He's changing your heart. And that is uh, room enough. So that's the definition of faith. How about works? Again, you may be like, I've got a good handle on that. I think we'll see something that maybe we don't uh, have a handle on. The Greek word is ergon. And Jesus uh, tackled this word several times, uh, as, long as, uh, as well as other New Testament uh, readers. Here in John 14, 
Jesus said this about works. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So this conversation about faith and works being connected has to do with the works of Jesus. In other words, the works that we're talking about, the ergon that we're talking about, are the works that Christ did. And those were the works that his followers were called to copy, to uh, uh, imitate. And greater works, one of the more powerful passages in the New Testament here, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Do you guys get that? Jesus says that I'm going to go to the Father and those left will see greater things. What was he talking about? Two things first. Those left would receive the helper that Jesus described a couple chapters later in John, which is anyone? The Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I need to go so the Holy Spirit can come, which tells me the Holy Spirit is a good thing. Anyone else? I know some of you are scared when I just speak about the Holy Spirit because you think all it has to do with tambourines and speaking in tongues and all kinds of stuff that you feel like you don't know anything about. Listen, if Jesus said, I need to go so the Holy Spirit can come, then it better mean we better understand what the Spirit's doing. Amen? Right? For the three of us that feel that way anyway, I'm encouraged that you hear that, right? Now, for the rest of us, understand this. Jesus says, I go... So the Spirit can come. And greater works will they do. Why? Because Jesus' work on the earth was where? It was in Galilee. It was in Jerusalem. And when the Holy Spirit comes at the Pentecost in Acts 2, what happens, my friends? In Acts 1 and 2, all of a sudden, this movement of Jesus spreads and begins to go worldwide. Greater works will they and you experience because it's not just going to be in this little uh, itty-bitty place of the world. The Spirit is going to empower believers to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Their power isn't greater than the Lord, but what they will see, the expanse of the gospel, is greater. So works then have everything to do with the works that Jesus did, empowered by the Spirit that God provides. Are we together? Okay? So that's affirmed in our next uh, text, which comes from Titus 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. It may feel like, as we're studying in James, so is James saying that we, we work our way And then God says, hey, look, you did awesome. Like, well done. Come on in. No, no, no. Never works-based righteousness. We're saved by grace through faith. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own what? Come on. Mercy. His grace. His love. Right? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God gives us the Holy Spirit, regenerating, renewing ourselves, making us, as Scripture says, a new creation. And it's in that, listen, that we're empowered to do good works. Are we together? My good works don't save me. God saves me, puts a spirit in me, producing the fruit that look like Christ. Together. Even more so, let me affirm it with this text in Ephesians. It says this, Ephesians 2 For we are his workmanship. Jared was uh, sharing with me that the better word here is like, we're we're his painting. We're his art. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Glorifying him. We're made 
to glorify him by our good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Pistis faith, Aragon works. Now back to our text and let's try to understand again what he's saying. What good, what profit, what benefit is it if someone says he has faith, trust, pistis, belief, but does not have works? Works that look like Jesus that are empowered by the Spirit. Can that faith save him? Apparently not. Uh, it's, it's like the teacher who stands in front of his class and stares at them all day. And never says a word. And never has his class take notes. It's like the fireman who doesn't fight a fire. Who like slides down the pole. And gets in the truck. And then when he gets to the fire... He looks at it, and nervously, he stays in the truck. It's like the employee that, uh, this may be talking about one or four of you, the employee who peruses Facebook all day, right? I look like I'm working. Actually, I'm updating my status and looking at everyone's new summer pics, right? The employee's supposed to work. The fireman is supposed to fight fires. That's for me in my house. I don't want no fireman showing up in my house that ain't prepared to fight a fire. Right? A teacher is supposed to teach. A follower of Christ is supposed to look like Jesus. That's what he's saying. Can that faith look like, can that faith save him? A faith that is mere words that just is spoken, but it doesn't have works to combine it? No, it's as silly as a fireman who can't fight a fire. In other words, listen, anyone can say anything, and it doesn't make it true. When I was in Florida last week, many of you know I have a huge obsession with minivans. I call them man vans. Um, I just purchased uh, a van off Craigslist and uh, decided that uh, it probably wasn't the best move on my part. Uh, somewhat sketchy, and uh, the timing belt that went out in the first couple days um, and uh, so I decided to resell it. So I was in Florida. I got a phone call. I'd fixed the timing belt and, you know, got it nice for whoever was going to buy it. Some of you are like, now you're shady, right? Like you're selling broken vehicles. I was completely full disclosure with the folks. Uh, they, they, they bought uh, my, my van. It's a great van. Leather, all nice. Sold it from Florida. Uh, then I was, uh, started to look at new vehicles. Like, like what's a vehicle that, that I could now have? And, uh, and so I, I started to look at all kinds of vehicles and I'm really excited to say that uh, I ended up from Florida purchasing a Saab. Now, um, that sounds like it makes me feel really cool. Um, I paid 2700 bucks for it. Uh, it it's, it's a 2002. It has a turbo engine. Like, it has a turbo gauge. Like, I can, I can stand up here right now and tell you guys, like, it, like it has a sunroof, heated seats. It makes me feel really cool. I can say all of that. At the end of the day, it's a glorified station wagon. Look at this. Next slide. Next slide, please. Cue the slide. It's a station wagon, right? That's what it is. That's my sob. Like, so just by describing it, you would think, man, Mark just made the upgrade from the, from the minivan. I got a station wagon. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what I'm rocking nowadays, right? I hope that doesn't embarrass you. Like, our pastor drives a station wagon. I'm not sure if that's appropriate. Um, But without the picture, like, I could just, just, hey, listen, listen, like, I'm rocking a sob. You should hear it beep, like, when I unlock it. It's like, because it's a Swiss, it's a Swiss uh, engine, which I didn't know what an American engine means anyway. Like, I open an American, it's all Swiss to me anyway, right? But it's, it's hydraulics, all of that. Like, 
And if I was just describing it to you, anyone can say anything and make it dress up to sound great. But at the end of the day, I fully believe that truth is buoyant. Eventually, I could tell you about the sob. You would see me rocking it. You'd be like, that's, a, that's his sob? That's a station wagon, right? <laughs> can that faith save him? Can a faith that is just spoken but doesn't prove itself, evidence itself in works, can that faith save him? Well, to further his journey, he adds this amazing example in verse 15 and 16. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? In other words, what James is saying is that there are words that people can say that give the appearance that you care. Uh, I'd like to say that uh, I'm a, a closet ninja, okay? Now, have some of you guys seen the, the show A Ninja Warrior, right? Okay, and I would do horrible on that uh, television show, by the way. Some of you guys, have you guys seen this, right? It's like this new... Anyway, I would like to say that I ninja'd this door. Uh, however, I did not. This came from one of our interns' houses. Now, a door has a particular purpose. You're all aware of this, right? Like... A door is meant to, you know, keep some closure between some spaces. It's meant uh, to, to block one thing from the other. Now, there are certain doors that have some more girth, if you will, to them, right? There are certain doors that if you hit them, kick them, push them in, uh, you would break your face, your hand, your foot. Are we together? There are other doors, however, um, that, that are what? Uh, yeah, outside of a little cardboard in them, this is a hollow door, right? Um, like, initially, you're just like, man, that, I mean, it would, it's painted white, it looks substantial, and I'm certainly not going to hit it and try it, right? But when all of a sudden it's broken open and you see it, you realize that it's really not um, serving its purpose at all, that it's completely hollow, that actually the purpose that it's supposed to serve, it can, mere, it can be taken out in a second, what James is saying is, there are words that are completely empty and hollow, that have no meaning, that give the appearance that they're substantial and that they mean something, but if you flip those words on its end, you see right through them. I want to give you some more examples before we break down the passage. I feel like this is one of our biggest epidemics in Christianity, hollow Christian pleasantries. Words that we say that are security blankets make us feel better, put off action, but if you were to flip those words on its end, they are completely hollow and they have no worth. Let's begin with this first classic, I will pray for you. How many times today have you said that and not done it? It's for most of us a hollow pleasantry. It's become a way that we communicate with one another, that says, I care. Christians have learned, listen, if you want to tell another Christian that you care for them, just tell them that you're praying for them. You never have to do it. It's awesome. You never have to do it. You just tell them, and everyone's like, thank you. I appreciate that. I personally feel it's one of our biggest sin struggles because we're liars. 
If we're communicating with everyone that we're praying for them and we're not doing it, we are liars. Are we together? We're deceivers. We're people that are giving the appearance that we have some semblance of care in our heart when in reality all we want to do is to put on the mask that it's all okay and in my closet that you can't see I'm on my face praying when really I'm not at all. Another classic of Christian pleasantry is I am sorry. I once or thrice have used this one with my wife. I'm not sure if some of you uh, have employed this as well. Uh, by your lack of response, I'm guessing I'm the only one who fails at this. Um, every once in a while, uh, my wife will be upset with me about something. Every once in a while, she will be upset with me. And, um, and you know, like I, I appreciate her uh, rebuke. But I just, you know, I just kind of want to end the argument. I just, I want it to be all over. I mean, have you guys ever felt that in an argument? I just want this to be over. And so, like, what do you turn to? Like, you put on the most genuine face possible, you know? And, honey, I'm sorry. When in my heart, I'm like, I'm completely right. Like, I, like, I don't, <laughs> this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever said in my life. But, honey, listen, I'm so incredibly sorry, you know? Even, like, like fake cry, you know, like water, you're like, you know, see, like, I'm crying, babe. I'm really sorry. And I, like, it's kind of funny, but I also repent of that. And re- like, I put that before you now to even recognize the own deception in my own heart when that happens. It's a hollow Christian pleasantry. We've learned how to say it to one another because it, it seems like it ends situations. When in your heart, in your heart, you're like, I'm right. I don't need to say sorry. Are you kidding me? But I just want this to be over, so I'm sorry. Next. Uh, This next one is pretty interesting. I hope blank, fill in the blank there, goes well. Hope that goes well. In your heart, you're thinking, I hope you fall on your face. Hey, I hope that really goes awesome. And in your heart, what you're thinking is, maybe this will be the time they finally get theirs. But I'm a Christian, so I can't say that to their face. I hope it all goes well. Hope it goes incredible. You know, fill in your adjective, awesome. I don't care what it is. But in your heart, you really, want, uh, you really wish them uh, horrible things because in your heart, that prideful, arrogant piece of you, any time one of your Christians or Christian brothers or sisters fail, there are some of us at some times that struggle when those moments happen that it actually escalates us. When we watch Christian brothers and sisters fall on their face, there's a piece of us that actually thinks, I'm not that bad. Pretty good, I mean, in comparison, like Jared talked about last week. Not doing too shabby, right? It's a hollow Christian pleasantry. It can be. All these statements can have tremendous value, weight, and authenticity. But on the flip side, when you turn them on on their side, they can be completely empty and hollow. Uh, So our next uh, fourth one here is I'm hurting with you. or I'm feeling the weight of your pain, right? You know what this one uh, really shows us? Is we really don't want to spend a tremendous amount of time with people, do we? All these things, it's so much easier just to say and then get to step in. Especially when, when people are hurting. And I'm not saying that you know what to say, because I believe oftentimes when others are hurting, it's best just to sit there with them and not open your yapper. We fill that empty space too much with Christian cliches that are hollow because your heart doesn't mean it. You just don't know what to say. 
And so we say things like, I'm hurting with you, when we're really not. We're like looking at the time. When can I get out of here? I don't want to ask this person a question. I really don't care that much. But if I give the appearance that I don't, then this person's going to think I'm not a genuine Christian, so I better look like I'm a genuine Christian. Hey, I'm hurting with you, right? These are hollow pleasantries that are empty. They give the appearance of faith, like I'm, I'm legitimate, aren't I? I'm a Christian. I say all these things all the time. And what James is saying is, can that faith save a man? The last one, uh, and I end with this uh, appropriately, God's got it under control. This is classic. This is classic. It's our fail-safe. Joy, pain, hurt, it doesn't matter. We're quick. Hey, listen, God, listen, come on now. God's got it all under control. It's all in his plan. It's, he's good when in our heart we're like, I'm not so sure that he does. I'm not so sure that he's got any of this under control. In fact, it feels completely out of control currently. But if I, don't, if I say that, then people might think I'm less of a Christian. So, man, God's got it under control. Even the hands raised at the same time, which brings more emphatic you know, power to it. God's got it under control, you know. These are all hollow pleasantries. So do you see what James is saying? Put my verse back up. Look at this. So in verse 15 and 16, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, the better word there is naked, if they're naked and lacking in daily food, they're hungry and naked, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? It's a hollow pleasantry, and for me, it's one of my biggest pet peeves. I believe Christians spend their much of their existence saying good luck. That's what go in peace, be warmed and filled says. That's what I'm praying for you and not meaning it says. Good luck. I had uh, someone come up one time after a sermon, and uh, they came up, they were the first time here, and I appreciate the genuineness, they were like, they said congratulations, and I just remember thinking like, I'm not so sure that that is the right phrase right there, you know what I'm saying, like congratulations, did I win something, like did something just happen that I wasn't aware of, you know, like it was the wrong statement for the wrong, uh, for, the, for the context, as Christians, we should never be saying good luck, but with our hollow pleasantries, we're showing the world that we believe in a four-leaf clover actually way more than they do. Hey, I'm praying for you. Really, in my heart, good luck with that, because I don't know if God's anywhere, but if I say it, maybe it will become true. So here's your four-leaf clover, right? It's dominating us. And what we're starting to live under the premise of is that our faith can just be security blanket can just be words can just be moving around our existence passing around these things that are hollow that have no substance to them and think that that faith saves us do we see the problem here now i want to talk about who james is addressing we uh, hit this a couple weeks ago in my last teaching uh, james is addressing a jewish audience who comes out of what like intense law okay intense law follow the law Look at the law, obey the law. Well, everything under Christ, like we saw a couple weeks ago, is, is the law of liberty, freedom. Like Jesus brings grace and freedom. And what I believe much of the context of what James is writing to are Jewish believers who have gone from one extreme to the other. They've gone from legalistic law-abiding citizens to now taking advantage of liberty in Christ. You see what I'm saying? And so they're now resting completely in grace, loosening their following of God in Christ 
in the name of grace and liberty. And that is not what the scripture teaches. Shall we go on sinning so grace may increase? Paul says, by no means. So I personally believe that James is writing to a bunch of people, at least some, who have overcompensated, who need to come back to celebrating liberty in Christ, but recognizing Jesus says, come and follow me. And some of you are confused on that. Some of you believe that your faith is confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and that's it. Uh, Our problem is really addressed in verse 17. It says this, Um, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he asked a couple of rhetorical questions, it seems, and now he answers it. Faith, we have already defined that by itself. If it does not have works, we define that is dead. We haven't defined that. You're like, again, I think I have a handle on that. The Greek word is nekros. It means destitute of life. Devoid of life, absent of life. Now the reason why faith without works is dead is because we serve a living God. We serve a living God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So faith without works is dead because we serve a living God. And now all of a sudden we're back to where we started. The Holy Spirit. If we serve a living God, and that spirit is in us, then that means something. Are we together? Uh, That's why I really struggle with uh, folks who um, really struggle with the doctrine, if saved, always saved. Uh, We don't say, once saved, always saved. We say, if saved, always saved. And I want to show you why in this next passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his what? His spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Let me explain. At the onset of your faith, your confession that the Lord is real, that the death and resurrection of Christ is sufficient to forgive your sins, that he walked out of a tomb, that he's living, your confession of that, the onset of that genuine faith confession, the scripture says that God provides us the helper, the spirit. And it's his what? What's the last word there? It's his guarantee. We believe here, if saved, always saved. Why? Because if you're saved and God gives you his Holy Spirit and guarantees you, and what's the other word? Seals you. Does he then one day pull it out? No, he gives it to you so that you are empowered to look like his son. That's why the next text is so powerful. Look at this. Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit... Is, and I, I know like some of you are expecting like the fruit of the loom, like, you know, characters to come out now on the screen, right? Because you grew up in a youth group that when it, when it came to teaching the fruit of the Spirit, like some, you know, some junior higher came out with a big apple around him or something, right? The fruit of the Spirit, maybe you didn't do that. I did that anyway. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Well, what are these things? These are the things that look a whole lot like Jesus. Agree? Jesus was loving. He was joyful. He had tremendous amount of peace. He was the prince of peace. Patient, kind, goodness, faithful, gentleness, clearly exhibited self-control. And remember when we read John 14? 
Our works should look like that of Christ. How? The Spirit. Are we together? Faith without works is dead because the Spirit which is alive is in true believers. Producing fruit that looks like Christ. That's what James 2, 14-17 means. It means this. Next slide. It means this. Therefore, true followers of Christ are not hollow. They are not hollow. Why? They have the Spirit of Christ in them. Empowering them, enabling them, encouraging them, prompting them to obey the Lord. So your question now is, Mark, what about my failures? What about when I fall short? What about when I'm not so loving or joyous or patient? I was confessing to Lonnie earlier today. Within a couple days, probably of closing the building, probably. And I was just confessing to him, I think the Lord is taking me through this journey to show me that I'm not quite patient enough. I mean, I've been a little bit on edge the last couple weeks, supposed to close a couple weeks ago. And I was telling him, I, I know I'm a little OCD, a little bit rambunctious, right? But I think the Lord's trying to mold me, like use this as an opportunity to teach me patience and remind me that he does have it all under control. So what of those moments when we realize that we're falling short? The Spirit inside of us convicts us and stirs our heart to true repentance, not just regret. Stirs our heart to run from our sin and embrace the love of Jesus in our forgiveness and His forgiveness for us. And not just simply feel bad for our sin like we talked about a couple weeks ago. Are we together? True believers are not hollow. The Spirit is inside of them, producing good works. So, faith without works is dead. That faith can't save a man. So, um, my question for you then is, if we were to flip you on your side, what we got? Could we see right through it all? The, The emptiness, the hollowness that you feel is actually legitimate. And I'm not just talking about like the Lord filling that empty void like we so often talk about. You know what he fills it with? His spirit. That's the filling of the void in our heart. We need him in us. And he promises it through the spirit. So are you hollow? Does your lack of faith and the evidence of your works reveal tonight that really you're not living for him at all? Actually, you're living still for yourself. Though what you've done on the outside is mask it completely with hollow Christian pleasantries that is giving the appearance to everyone else that it's faith. But tonight you realize actually it's not at all. I don't share all this on my own opinion to bring tremendous doubt in this room. At the same time, I share this straight from the scripture to challenge our hearts to true faith and to true repentance. By the love and grace of our Lord Jesus. Believing that when His Spirit is inside of us, it will produce good work. So my fear, my great fear, is that if you took the church of America and you flipped it on its side, riddled with hollowness, and it's no wonder why the world looks at us, and they're like, I want nothing to do with that I'm hollow as it is. 
Those people aren't living any differently. I can see right through their disingenuousness. Their heart's just the same. But my friends, when the Spirit is empowering you and has come inside of you, what James is saying is life is different. Stand with me if you could. I want to invite the uh, elders up here, Lonnie and Jeff. If you guys could come join me. <clears throat> Yo, brother. Now, um, because we serve a living God, a God that's alive, a God that walked out of a tomb, I'm reminded of the verse that we started with tonight. Deuteronomy, oh Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. And I'm, I'm struck with the anticipation that Moses had about what the Lord would do. He really believed that God could do whatever he wanted at whatever time, and it could be huge. And I believe here tonight that God can transform all of our hearts not just one, two, or a spattering over here or a spattering over there. I truly believe that God can stir our hearts to repentance, causing us to recognize the distance between our faith and our works and say, Lord, please increase my faith that I can truly live and walk by the Spirit like your Word talks about. And the reminder of that grace that we can receive tonight. Jesus took the bread one night and He broke it in the hours before His death and He said, this is my body which is broken for you. He said, take and eat. And do this in remembrance of what? Of me. So when you eat this, you're remembering my grace, that it's sufficient. You need me. You need to be saved. You need deliverance. And if you've tricked yourself and convinced yourself thinking that you don't, maybe now more than ever, you realize you need a good, loving, gracious God to reach down and pull you off the raft. Anyone? And then he uh, passed the cup around and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. He said, take this and drink and do this in remembrance of me. And at Matthias, this is a meal for believers. And we pull a piece of the bread off and dip it in the cup. And what we're saying when we receive this meal is, Lord, I need you. I need to be saved. I need your deliverance. I need your grace. God, I repent of my failings and my sin. God, restore and renew in me the joy of my salvation. And so I pray for some that, that that joy is restored and for others that you would experience it right now for the first time. You'd recognize your need for deliverance and maybe even you receive this meal for the first time as a revelation of what God's done in your life. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours. That's our God. The elders have desired to serve you all tonight. So as we worship, come when you're ready.